Well, good evening to everybody here. Uh, we want to call this conference the, the Hastening the Day Conference. And uh, that phrase, when you think of that phrase, just pause for a minute and think, Hasten the Day of God. And there's phrases that, that we hear throughout the Word, and they kind of become phrases. And uh, it's, it's amazing to me, as, as you go throughout our American culture, that, you know, it's claiming to be a, a, a biblical-founded culture. For the last couple of years, I've come across three people, through friends, that have absolutely no knowledge of the Bible. Like, they don't know who Adam and Eve are. They don't know anything about Noah. They don't even know, like, books in the Bible. Somebody will quote a verse, and they'll say, well, it's in this book, and they'll say, is that in the Bible? And they really, sincerely don't know the Bible. So I'm not going to take for granted that there's people in this room that have a smaller amount of understanding in the Bible. It is a large book. It tends to intimidate people, and then we all have our own predispositions of how we want to interpret what it says. So, when you read a verse like, hastening the day of the Lord, especially when you read the verses around it about fire and intense heat and destruction and, and all those kinds of things, it begs a context. What does this mean? Why? Who? When? In what way? Is all this going to happen? And for me to go in and just start talking about hastening the day of the Lord in a vacuum would be a great disservice to all of you. So what I want to do is I want to try to paint a context for what we call hope. Yeah. And when you think of hope, think of the common ways you hear hope thrown around in our conversations. I hope so. <laughs> I'm hopeful. In the Bible... Hope is like a precious gem that you need to look at for a long time and turn around and see every facet of its brilliance and shine. But the only way for hope to shine is for it to be realized that we don't have it yet. It's a treasure to be sought. Romans 8 says, how do you hope for what you don't, for what you already have? You can't hope for what you already have. But if you hope for what you don't have, you eagerly long and wait and persevere in prayer and set your heart in a certain way for it. When I was an unbeliever, there was a morning that I woke up after being very intoxicated and recovering the next morning, driving to get some kind of fast food breakfast to go with that gut rot of beer and other leftover things, you know, to compliment it. I'm driving down the road, and what do I see? but about 12 little children, ages 3 to 5, carrying a big, long, white banner with a message on it. And it said, Jesus is coming back. Well, for a kid that grew up with the Romans Road and Baptist Church, knew the verses about sin and death and the wages of sin, and knew about this word hell and judgment and that if you don't believe in Jesus, you go to hell kind of thing. I had enough fear in me of seeing that to perk my interest. Not a good interest, but a little bit of fear. 
I have no context, though, for what I should do to be on the good side, to be able to be prepared for that return of Jesus with something we call hope. I was an unbeliever. It wasn't but a few months after that that the Lord grabbed me, literally. I had an encounter with Jesus, and I was never the same. Then I went to endeavor to understand His Word over the next 14, 15 years. And let me tell you, it took those 14, 15 years for me to even get an understanding of how to contextualize hope, what it even is. But really, it's you start with the very beginning because it's a very good place to start. And the very beginning is very good. God's design. God's ways. Perfect union with Adam and Eve. Perfect everything. God's design. But something terrible happened. Man and woman broke away from God. And right at that point is the key understanding of how we approach anything else for our life and in the Word of God, in our relationships, or whatever it may be. When we're approaching a wedding or a funeral, how do we determine, how do we, what, what do we see happen when Adam and Eve broke away? How destructive was it? How catastrophic was it? It wasn't good. It was terribly bad. Everything very good became utterly corrupt. Especially every thought and inclination of the heart of man was only wicked always from that point on. And if we don't come to terms with Genesis, we can't come to terms with Revelation. Psalms don't have a context either. What are we singing about if Revelation isn't real? And Revelation, the last book of the Bible, doesn't have a context without Genesis. And hastening the day of the Lord has no context when we don't understand what it means to hasten the day of the Lord. Or why we should. How to do it. See, so when we come to this term, hope, we need to understand that it wasn't our hope from the beginning, most of us in this room. But you know where hope really began? I mean, besides the fact that Adam and Eve heard that the serpent would be crushed ultimately, that was the first little uh, glimmer of hope, that there would be someone called a seed coming forth from the woman who would crush the serpent. That we call it the first gospel, or the proto-evangelium. That's the place where God promised that He would bring things to restoration. But He had to do it through a nation. And that nation's name is Israel. And to understand biblical hope, you have to understand that it started with the nation of Israel. Oh, and it remains with the nation of Israel. And if it remains with the nation of Israel, everything else will make sense in the rest of the Bible. But if you pull Israel out of the equation, you completely reinterpret the New Testament. And when you reinterpret the New Testament, you remove the blessed hope. If you remove the blessed hope, 
You can come to a point where your prayer is so perfect that you never have to ask again mindset. You ever heard that one thrown around? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm past the asking stage. Oh, really? You have all things already. Jesus said, ask, not. And if you want to think that the Gospels are trumped by the epistles, James said, ask. And ask with the right motives. So in other words, being a believer doesn't make your motives all perfect. In other words, we still need prayer. And if we don't set ourselves in prayer, we'll move away from the hope held out in the gospel. And if we move away from the hope held out in the gospel, we'll perish in the day of the Lord. Because we'll cast off restraint, we'll live for ourselves. And we'll lay hold of our life in this age and, and lose it in the end. Let's look at some places in Scripture that make this very clear. And as we do, here's the key. When you come to the Bible, what you've got to realize is it's a unit that's unified and complete. The Old Testament had law and grace. The New Testament has law and grace. The difference is, the New Testament introduced Jesus, our hope, through the resurrection. And hope overcomes death in the New Testament. And we realize in the Old Testament that until Moses, death reigned on the earth. But when Moses came, the law revealed that death was reigning on the earth. And it pushed the people of Israel to a covenant with God. Actually, it revealed their failure of the covenant with God. When we come to the New Testament, the law reveals to us Gentiles that were outside of covenant with God as well. And the law reveals that our only hope is the cross. And the cross, embraced, prepares us to receive the down payment of the Holy Spirit who helps us set our hope on God restoring all things, starting with our heart and leading to the entire cosmos, the earth and everything. So the Holy Spirit comes and gives us the first fruits that our bodies long for to be resurrected, groaning inwardly in the place of intercession, longing for God to give us His will and work everything together for good in the big picture of this world. Not just stubbing our toe, you know, kind of context, but the big picture to conform us to the image of Jesus so He can glorify us when He returns. To prepare us. Much affliction must come upon us or be realized to be prepared for that. So when we come to the New Testament... Hope is very clear. Look what 1 Peter 1.13 says. This is a topic that is really important. It's understanding hope is so linked to understanding grace. And we don't understand grace as human beings for a couple of reasons. It's 1 Peter 1.13, if you need me to remind as I keep gabbing. So verse 13, but if... As human beings, we don't understand grace. 
So we twist it, one way or another. Either it's something that we have to prove that we deserve, or it's something that says we can do anything we want. That's what we say grace is. But I want to de-etherealize grace and link it to a person. Link it, in fact, to a king. What grace is, is it's a king saying, I give you favor. I accept you right now. In hopes that you'll go all the way in walking in it. Walking in his favor. In other words, walking in the things that he designed you for. Because if the king doesn't hold out a scepter, we're all done. Because the fall really happened. I mean, that's something that we have to stop with to think. The fall happened to Adam and Eve, and the fall happened to me. And it's bad. It really destroyed the walking in the cool of the day. It destroyed my ability to discern good and evil. My ability to love well, my ability to forgive, to extend grace. There's nothing good in me. I really have to come to terms that grace is extended to confront all forms of self-righteousness. And if grace comes and and confronts my self-righteousness utterly, then it's grace. But if grace comes and tries to just fix something so it works a little bit better, then it's not grace. Because it's not what the king would extend. The king wants to give you what you can't give yourself. Grace has to be extended by the king. He wants to give you what you can't give yourself. You can't be fixed. That's why self-esteem is a fallacy. It's horrible. Self-esteem is, is wicked. It's arrogant. Now let that sink in because it's backwards to what we want to believe as human beings. We bit the apple or whatever the fruit really was. We did. We eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and we boast in it. Self-esteem is rooted in I know how to make myself feel better. And God likes me. Don't throw God on that. (laughs) Why don't you ask Him? It's a whole lot better when He esteems you. And He'll esteem you when you go so low in embracing that you're nothing. And by the way, that's freedom. When you realize how wicked you are. And depraved. And hopeless. And may I say worthless? Even on your good days, when you're all crimped up and your hair looks good, there's no boogers hanging out of your nose and you don't have to trim your nose hairs. You just took a shower and it's cool enough so you don't break a sweat when you get out. Those days, you've got your coffee in you for the day and you're ready to go to work. And the perfect work day comes, even those days, you're disgusting without the grace of God. Or Jesus should have just said, 
I forgive you without a cross. But if the cross is the only way to expose man and to deliver him, then the cross is the only way for anything. But if there's another way, then God's just crazy and sadistic and should have just gave us a pat in the back and said, it's okay, don't feel bad about yourself. This is so practical. It all starts with being real. You see, the beauty of God is that He constantly tries to awaken us to this. He, he took the people of Israel and made them exhibit A of His faithfulness because they completely broke His covenant. And then He comes to the new covenant and He welcomes all nations through the same way. And we break that same covenant. And our hope is set on a Jewish Messiah to restore everything. Our hope is still set on the return of the Jewish Messiah and the kings and priests of Israel to reign and be a light to the nations. And as a Gentile, that's a tough pill to swallow. The, the typical mantra of our heart is, it's not fair, so I don't care. But if you'd understand the hastening of the day of the Lord and biblical hope, it's utterly tied up in Israel. Israel has a certain role, and so do we. And guess what? They failed theirs. And guess what? So are we. We're not provoking them to jealousy. And the litmus test of the ages to see how much malicious acid we have in each other is Jew and Gentile. I know this seems like a bunny trail, but it's so important to understand biblical hope. The Jews never understood or accepted that other nations would be able to be accepted. But we as Gentiles, we want to reinterpret the New Testament and say, what well, was never about Israel, we are the Israel. You see? And that little subtle shift shifts the entire Bible, especially the New Testament. So when we hear of the day of the Lord, the only way we can ever understand hastening the day of God or the day of the Lord is to understand that it was something the prophets said over and over and over. And who were the prophets talking to? It sure wasn't people in Miami, Dade County, or Minnesota for that fact. The frozen chosen. <laughs> but he was speaking to a people named Israel, every prophet, calling them back to the covenant with Abraham. How? By calling them back to Moses to show them that they failed in hopes that they would fall on their face and, and return to God. The law was put in place to reveal how desperate our situation really is. It's a demise. It's death. And how we deal with our issues has to happen in a place of prayer. Mm 
And if we're ever going to like the place of prayer, and even love the place of prayer, we have to know how desperate our condition is. And if we don't know how desperate our condition is, how are we ever going to reach the world? If we act like we have it all together because we're a Christian. If we think that the Holy Spirit has trumped the work of the cross in our life and that we've completely succeeded at being put back together. You see, grace is the most confrontational thing that could ever happen because the only way you can receive it in the first place is when you realize that you don't have anything to offer. Then you can actually be a vessel that receives it. But without that understanding, you will be bent on going back to propping up your own selfish, self-righteousness in many, many ways. And you'll look for acceptance from the glamour that the world can give you. Because you won't be desperate enough to know that if you don't abide by the hope extended in the gospel, you perish. So 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, don't be conformed to the lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth, knowing you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life and inherited from your forefathers, but from precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. The blood of Christ. It's the blood of Christ. We must confess uh, the demise, the, the death that's come upon us to recognize how desperate we are for a hope. Hope is not the least of these. That's what we need to understand. Faith, hope, and love remain. And the greatest of these is love. But the least of these is not hope nor faith. They work in a tandem. If you have faith in God, it means you've turned away from faith in you. It's faith toward God. It's repentance from dead works. And the faith is in the blood atonement of the substitution of Jesus' life for yours under the wrath of God. That's clear from the scriptures. That Jesus atoned for the wrath of God that we deserve. And when we have faith in that cross, then we set our hope on what that cross declares. If Jesus was a son of God who had no sin and had to learn obedience on a cross through suffering... How could wicked, depraved human beings bypass that process? It doesn't make any sense. But if Jesus' way was our example that we walk in His footsteps, 
then it makes sense. Then our afflictions, our sufferings, bring about death in our flesh, so we're done with sin. When we look away from hope in this age, when we set it on the return of Jesus, we set it on that resurrection hope. What only God can do. So hope is actually the, the foundational anchor and bolstering of our faith, which is expressed through love. And love is not as... Uh, uh, emotional, fuzzy of a word as we ever imagined. Love is literally a laying down of your life. All throughout the New Testament, the word agape means that. And there's a couple places where it's used in a negative term, love not the world, or the things of the world. And then love not your life, and shrinking from death. And all the rest are love is long-suffering toward others, patient, kind. Love believes the best. Love is always displayed on the cross. This is how we know love. God demonstrated His love, and while we're still sinners, sending His Son to die. God so loved the world, He gave His only Son that He became, that, that all who believe would not perish, but have everlasting life. Even our favorite passage of God is love can't be understood outside of the cross. God sent His love to be the satisfaction for our sins. And then it goes on to say, God is love. Because if we don't have the cross, then we think love is God. We turn it around and make it an idol. We don't know the depth that he loved his own to the end, unless it's with a cross. It cost Jesus a whole lot to give his life. And the candy-coated pill of the love of God is going to delude many. And that's why the love of many will grow cold. Because the candy-coated pill that just take this pill and puff instant sanctification is the greatest delusion the serpent could ever repackage from Genesis 3 when he said, Did God say, You'll become like Him? You'll know good and evil? God's holding out. And now He comes to us in religious clothing and says, Oh God, just don't see just loves you. That's all. And we can't even receive that kind of love because we already hate ourselves. I mean, be honest. We already hate ourselves. And God does love us. He loves the ones that hate themselves and really hate Him. That's deep. That's love. That He displays our hatred on the cross. Our hatred for him and ourself. And he shows how far he'll go to reveal our depravity that we can't even understand. We want to feel good about ourselves. But there's 99 ways for us to do that the wrong way and there's one way that actually works. 
how could anything ever be restored apart from my death? And how could my death ever be embraced but by a cross? And Scripture backs this up a thousand places when we, we look at it with Revelation. Look at 1 Peter 2. Look what Peter says. And context for Peter, that's so huge. Peter is warning believers in Turkey, modern day Turkey, scattered among the nation Jews and some Gentiles. But he's addressing his own brothers, the Jews, along with Gentiles, okay? In 1 Peter. And Peter gets word from Rome that Nero had started the city on fire because he wanted to remodel. And he used the excuse that Christians did it to get them in trouble, to make an excuse to take Christians and rope them up and light them as torches for his barbecue at nighttime, literally. And others he put animal skins on and threw to the wild beasts to be eaten. And this was 64 A.D., And in the middle of 64 AD, this persecution, more of a small-scale persecution of Nero from 64 to like 68, and he was done in like 69, I think. So Nero had a short-term persecution, not widespread, just in pockets. It had been in Rome. It had been against the Christians, especially the Jewish Christians that had abandoned Judaism and embraced the persecution of the cross, which many of them would be attempting to hide in Judaism, that's why Hebrews is written. But instead of hiding in Judaism, many were taking up their cross, publicly living as a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And Rome wouldn't have that because that meant that there was another Lord that wasn't Caesar, that people were giving a confession to and kissing his ring. People were saying, God exalted Jesus and rose him from the dead, so he's coming again to be a judge. So that meant, if you're going to have allegiance, who wouldn't have allegiance if they believed that about Jesus? Okay? Now, his mercy is one thing that wins our heart, his judgment is another. And they really work in tandem. But Jesus, enthroned, now having others following him, confident, bold by the Holy Spirit given them, they hear from Peter that. Trials might be necessary for their faith to be strengthened. First Peter 1. If necessary, trials are coming. I think Nero is thinking about coming here and just be ready, he's saying. Because your faith, more precious than gold, is being refined in a fire to be found in praise and glory on the day Jesus comes back. So you have this joy inexpressible and glorified to give you perseverance to be persecuted and then get more joy and then be persecuted and walk out like the disciples and brag about the lashes on your back because you're suffering for the name. That's the kind of crazy people that Jesus turns his followers into when their hope is clear and vibrant and set on the resurrection and not on humanistic Christianity and values and biblical values that we're standing on. We've got to quit boasting of biblical values and live them out. 
It's just moral snobbery that we're doing to the world. Tied with political snobbery. Because the political things, our political agenda, when that's too zealous and too strong, what happens? It comes from the flesh. And the world smells that. That's supposed to be dead. But when that dead corpse of your flesh is being lived out and called biblical values, what do you think the world's doing with biblical values? They're calling it Christianity and they're making excuses for themselves. We have to know how to live the Bible instead of bragging on biblical values. And so when Peter says to them, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope you have, we get all bubbly and excited when we hear that verse and we think, oh, if I smile, they're going to know I'm a Christian. But Peter's saying, sanctify the Lord in your heart and be ready because Nero's coming to say, pledge your allegiance to Caesar or your head will be mine. There's one king, Caesar. There's not another king, Jesus. Context is painful. When we get context, it's painful. So now this should make sense that Peter would say in 1 Peter 2, verse 20, What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? Okay? If you sin, there's consequences. That's not suffering for Jesus. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. What were His steps and what was His purpose? To suffer for doing what's right. Verse before. We're called to suffer for doing what's right. But the first application of suffering, and there's only one instrument for our suffering, and that's the cross. There's only one instrument for our forgiveness and our justification, and there's only one instrument for our sanctification of our motives and our actions and our words, and that's the cross. It's completely looking away from our righteousness, which is filthy rags. We have to come to terms with our wickedness. That's the first thing the cross confronts. We can't play games with the world. We can't have one foot and one foot out. That was never the case. It was never the case. Just the urgency is making it clearer and clearer and clearer that that was never the case. The call has always been cross-bearing Christianity. Ever since Jesus. And again, the work of the Holy Spirit did not trump Jesus' words. Because we don't reinterpret the epistles. They're building upon the Gospels and the Prophets and the Law. It's all one story. Starting with the fall. Again, if we start with the fall, it makes sense to end with the resurrection. And if you have that, everything in between makes sense. But if you remove the fall, and you make it this kind of a patchwork that God had to do, then we don't need a resurrection, we don't need Jesus to come back, we just need to become the people that establish His rule through us, through our affluence, through our politics, through our agendas, and our ability. 
And that's just staying in the garden, in chapter 3, the same things that Satan has always said to people. You can do it your own way. You can be like God. So, one more very clear passage on suffering. 1 Thessalonians. Thessalonians. I have to get out a second. Thessalonians is my problem. Here we go. All right. So look what Paul says in chapter 2. And Paul's coming to his first church. They're young in the faith. But the testimony of them has spread all over the modern world because they turned from idols to the living God in such a drastic way. And Paul's teaching them what? Eschatology, or the study of the end times. Which is, by the way, the bedrock of all the Bible. In other words, like it's the foundation of the house. If salvation is a house, there's got to be a foundation, and that foundation is hope. And hope makes sense when you believe the fall happened. Because then you believe the resurrection must happen. So the whole Bible is grounded on something called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is Isaiah 2, he'll make every high thing low, right? Nothing will be exalted anymore. Or Isaiah 13, he'll make mortal man scarcer than gold. His controversy with the nations. His gloom and darkness and judgment. The day of the Lord. And it's the final statement of God that he makes. It's his strange work, as Isaiah 28 calls it. It's not a sadistic God waiting to crush people in the heavens. It's the last resort. He's been waiting for a long time, Isaiah 42, and he's about to gasp, to pant, to cry out like a mighty man of war. The day of vengeance is in his heart. Jesus said he came to preach the day of the favorable year of the Lord and he stopped the sentence short because it wasn't time for the next part of it and the day of vengeance of our God. But that day is drawing near swiftly. It's coming quickly. Too quickly for any of us to be prepared. We're not ready. Apart from that grace of God to again remind us and keep calling us back to this place where we actually even consider how important it is to even think that there is a day coming. One day that God's reserved and our vapor of a life has 70 or 80 years because of strength and some people are even going 90 and 100. And God gives time for us to come to repentance and to stay in repentance. But if we don't stay in repentance, we don't understand repentance. If we excuse the grace of God for a license to sin, we don't understand grace. Because we don't see the majesty of the king. That's why in the end, in Isaiah 26, when the resurrection is going to come at the end of the age, he says, your judgments, when they are in the earth, the inhabitants of the earth learn righteousness. 
but show them favor and they'll cast off restraint. See, here's what happens. If we despise the riches of His kindness, long-suffering, and patience, not knowing it leads us to repentance, then we do the opposite. We store up an impenitent heart for the day of judgment where we'll find wrath and tribulation forever. But if we take on tribulation now, we take hold of that tribulation because of the Word, then we'll have life, immortality, and joy forever in the resurrection. But again, we have to come back to that place where we realize we need suffering. It's actually redemptive. Ever since the fall happened, the plan was suffering. Romans 8. He subjected the creation in hope to the curse. And every blade of grass and field that we hear groaning, every animal, every cancer patient, every murder, every marriage falling apart, every stillborn birth, every abortion, every corrupt thing that happens to fire somebody in a job. I mean, the list can go on. Think of the things that cause havoc and turmoil and pain in humanity. All those things are reminders that this is not our home. All those are reminders that if we're going to look for the day of the Lord, we have to look away from everything else. If the day of the Lord is real, then we will look away from everything else and look to that day. And we get all these questions. Let's, let's get into our lives a little bit here. We get all these questions. Well, what does that look like? Can I do this or can I do that? Or does it mean I have to do this? Wrong tree. Stop eating from it. You're eating from that same tree of the knowledge of good and evil if you're asking those questions. Get away from that tree. Paul says to these young believers that they're destined to suffer. Jump to chapter 3 instead of 2, for time's sake. Too many bunny trails with me otherwise. 1 Thessalonians 3. Paul's talking about Timothy in verse 2. His brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. Who he sent to Thessalonica to strengthen and encourage them as to their faith. So no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Okay, he's talking to Gentiles. Not just talking to Jews. We like to put the Jews under the suffering and the curses and find ourselves under the blessings and the joy and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the grace that just covers everything. And, you know, <laughs> reinterpreting everything of the New Testament allegorizing all these sufferings or putting them back to the first century because the church wasn't mature enough to handle the power of God yet. Now we do. I mean, <laughs> just funny thing is, all our misunderstandings are so simple. If we'd stop being so enthralled with ourselves and we'd think about it a little bit and, be, and realize that we just, just about wanted to kill our kid this morning. Or we just about gave the bird to that guy in traffic. 
Or did. <laughs> Absolutely. That's good honesty. That's a good start. Maybe it's my lack of willingness to be honest there. But you know what I mean? The best thing in the world I've ever heard is, it's so funny, in this issue of our deprav depravity, you know, it's a word that we don't like to hear, but let's keep saying it, depravity. Everybody say, everybody say depravity. Depravity. All right, depravity. Is somebody saying, well, you know, I haven't sinned for like three days to go up and slap them in the face. It's the best thing you could ever do for somebody. Is give them a slap in the face. In love, faithful are the wounds of a friend. But seriously, like, if I ever, if you guys know me long enough and I ever say that I've got it down, punch me in the face. I'm serious. I don't want to be deluded. And see, this is our issue. It's me and Jesus. That's our temptation. It's me and Jesus. But the Bible says confess your sins to one another. It commands it in James 5 and 1 John 1. You know why? Because as good and gracious as God is to allow us to confess our sin and give us good fellowship and grace and all that, He knows our hearts. We'll find ways to justify it. I got a friend in Minnesota who I help hold accountable as far as pornography and such, and he's got about five guys that help him. And I love his brutal honesty. You know what he said the other day? He goes, you know what I realized? I've got a... I've got a um, uh, what do you call it, in, in baseball, a pitching rotation. And my problem is, I can pick my pitcher, and all the other pitchers are able to, you know, rest, you know, in baseball, you get all your pitchers, if you've got a rotation of five, four are being rested while one's pitching that evening, one may be only resting one game, or three or four, until it's their time in the rotation, but they're all resting. Well, he realized he could treat us like a pitching rotation and not tell somebody when he's struggling and tell somebody else that he's struggling. And pretty soon there's this gap in there where he can just be struggling and hiding his sin. And that's what I mean, is we will hide our sin. Okay? One is materialism. Let's, let's think about materialism. I don't want to get into the materialism in a... Really, just think about materialism, okay? Never mind what I was just saying there. I, I know what I was saying, but it would be too hard to explain. I'm going to stop. So, materialism, think about it. Now, is it wrong to have things? No. But it's wrong when they have you, right? Yeah. How do we know when they have us? We get so used to knowing what we have that we don't even, we can't see the forest for the trees. We don't know if we're camping out too much on what we have because we're so used to we take it for granted. It's not wrong to have things. I don't believe in the vow of poverty. Unless you're talking about your condition. Then take that vow every day. I am poor in spirit. And I want to enter the kingdom. And I know only if I maintain a poverty of spirit, utter rejection of self-righteousness, completely finding my hope in Jesus, that I won't be in the kingdom. Because the kingdom's future. We're not kings. We're priests. We are not kings. We are priests. Do you know that Jesus is not even assuming full kingship yet? 
sits as a priest. Enthroned. Enthroned. Because glory and honor has been given back to him, right? Hebrews 2 speaks of that. Look at Hebrews 2. I have to hammer this one home with this, or it's in a vacuum. This is a big controversial issue. I know, and I don't want it to divide. I want it to set our hope. Look at Hebrews 2. What did Jesus say? And this is a tough pill to swallow. Stop for a second and realize, really, I'm going to take my hand off my imagined scepter and my imagined official crown that I have right now. Because if I still have to ask in the place of prayer, that's the idea of being a priest. If I had everything now, like Paul sarcastically said to the Corinthians, oh, why do you have, act like what you have isn't, hasn't been given to you? In 1 Corinthians 4, and he says, oh, you're kings? <coughs> We're the scum of the earth and, and suffering. Wow, I wish we could reign with you. But God put us on the end of the procession to suffer ridicule, even in front of the angels. Hmm. Last time I checked, the kingdom wasn't talk, but power. Okay, so think about that. What he's saying is, the kingdom will come in power when it comes. Okay? Now, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But again, think Old Testament. When the kingdom came, in the book of Daniel chapter 2, the stone crushed every other kingdom. And when Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees in John 17, he says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Some translate within you. He's talking to people that are devoid of the Holy Spirit, to people that are hypocrites. He's confronting them. But he's saying Daniel 2, clearly from the context, the kingdom of God will come in your midst. And just as in the days of Noah, he'll come and he'll split the sky like lightning from one end to the other. Because either the day of the Lord is necessary, and the cross is necessary, or the kingdom's already here. It's that simple. But look what Jesus says, or what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. Look at Hebrews 2 verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. Okay? Pause. It's a song. It's prophetic. It's eschatological. The Psalms are. Now, when God made man in the garden, He put glory and honor on him. Made him in His image. But we spoiled that. And we temporarily forfeited that. Now watch. Watch the passage. Watch how it progresses and how, how the hermeneutics or the interpretation of Psalm 8 is taken on by this writer of Hebrews to make it make sense. And has appointed him over the works of your hands. Verse 8. You put all things in subjection under his feet. 
For in subjecting all things to him, lowercase, okay, humanity. He, God, capital H, left nothing that's not subject to him, man, lowercase. Okay? So far, it sounds like we have it, but look what it says. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, lowercase, to man. But look what it says. But we do see him, capital H, who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, inheritance, through whom are all things, preeminence, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. And now connect that word suffering to, for both he who sanctifies, suffering and sanctification. For those who are sanctified are all from one father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Okay, now some would say, well see, he's the source of our salvation. He did it for us. I don't need to suffer. I don't need to fast. I don't need to pray. I don't need to press in. I don't even need to, eventually, need Jesus to come back. That's what it leads to. There are people that actually believe Jesus doesn't need to come back. Now, fine, if you read that, you could interpret it that way. But that's not what it says in Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. Look at this, to make it very clear. And very often, people conveniently leave out verse 4. And it comes on the heels of some by faith escaping the sword and some by faith getting martyred. And then it leads right into, therefore, because of how these faithful witnesses got martyred, and we have a great cloud of them, of witnesses, of martyrs, surrounding us, let us also lay aside every weight, encumbrance, and the sin which so easily entangles us. Wait, I thought we're believers. Yeah, believers will see a whole lot more sin in their life than they would if they weren't believers. If you're a believer, and you believe God, and He's true, and every man's a liar, and there's a great work that needs to be done in my heart, I know, of the things that haunt me daily. And it's only my hope in the cross that sustains me. So he says, let us run with endurance the fate, the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In other words, it's not perfected yet. Who for the joy set before him. Okay? The joy set before him. He knew what would come of joy. You see? He was offered joy. Future. If he'd endure the cross. He despised the shame. Oh, that's... I'm going to do it. I don't... Whatever it costs. I don't care. I see the joy coming. You see? It was set before him as a goal to run to. If you read Isaiah, all the way through, joy is in the age to come. It's the reward of the age to come. Now it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Of course. Of course. But the fullness of joy is the age to come. 
everlasting joy in their heads, and sorrow and sighing will flee away forever. So the Holy Spirit gives us a deposit of the age to come, and joy is part of that. So he endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. For you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. There we go. The key to a sanctified suffering is striving against sin. But that's just the first step. You know, we have great consequences from our sin. And we suffer consequences from persisting in our sin. Like a pattern of sin. I mean, we already have a weak body and frame because of sin. Now, that's what God's done in hope. He subjected us to that, to realize that our hope's not now. But when we start compromising with pornography, or anger, or greed, or lying, you know, fraud, that work, little things, little thoughts of fantasy, perpetuates an issue and it leads to more of that and more of that and more of that so our first issue is to come to terms with our depravity our need for a savior then the beauty of receiving what our savior gives us in grace in the atoning blood of Jesus causes us to repent it makes us want to obey It makes us want to live in righteousness, seeking His kingdom and His righteousness that's coming. Because we, through faith, by the Holy Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness. That's what Galatians 5.5 shows us very clearly. There's a hope of righteousness coming. There's a grace to be revealed when Jesus Christ appears. There's a grace we have now. There's a righteousness we have now by faith. But there's a fullness of grace and righteousness that comes in His appearing. The Holy Spirit is the seal, the down payment, the first fruits. He provokes us to keep going and walking in righteousness. And as He does that, we abide in the vine. And we get rich sap from the vine, right? Fellowship. Communion. And we can fellowship with Jesus. And as we do that, We grow in godliness, and godliness provokes persecution. And persecution provokes us to fellowship with God. So we fellowship in suffering with Him. And then we suffer according to the gospel, according to the power of God. 2 Timothy 1.8. See, everybody knows the first verse, right? God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Therefore, what are you going to do with that? Suffer for the gospel according to the power of God. What a weird combination. Suffering and power. You're being empowered to suffer. Joy. Joy, joy, unspeakable. Suffering is stripping your hope in this age. Joy unspeakable. Amen. Suffering is stripping away your hand. 
See, if you want to lay hold of grace so that you can lay hold of hope, you have to let go with both hands and grab on those two things. You can't hold on to, well, you know, it's okay for anything. It's, I need grace. I'm living for hope. You see, God in His grace is increasing the urgency to increase the fervency because here's the thing. We won't awaken unless there's an alarm clock. It's always been this drastic of a call. But God's just that patient. He's just that patient that He waits for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief to those that don't come to repentance. You see? He's waiting. Because if the sentence against wickedness is not carried out swiftly, they cast off restraint. God said, you thought I was altogether one like you in Psalm 50. But I will come and I will state your case before you. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving lest I tear you apart. What kind of a God is talking there? Wickedness must be wickedness. Or God's sadistic. But we know He's not. So if we know God's not sadistic, and He's merciful, what are we doing about it? Because the day of the Lord will come with a blazing fire, like a furnace, and burn up all the wicked. But the righteous will go forth as calves from the stall, right? But what are we doing now? What are we doing right now to respond? How do we respond right now? We do what Paul said in Colossians 3. I'm going to start ramping down here for us to kind of get our mind around a response. So begin listening to the Holy Spirit as he, he speaks to you right now. I believe that He is showing things very clearly, clearly to you each individually what he is calling you to do things he's calling you to lay down. Some of you are having a really hard time with this right now. Some of you are shutting out what you're hearing because there was one point something was said from my lips and it didn't connect with what you believed. And some and there's people in the room right now, I know, I know this is how it goes, and you want to object. And I'm okay with that. I'm a man, I'm a human, but I would ask you to take up your object, objection right now with God and realize that we don't even realize sometimes when we're objecting what's going on in our heart. You see what I mean? I found that about myself. I'll object to somebody, what somebody's saying and completely shut my heart out to that person because I don't agree. All that's doing is the very opposite of our message. If our message is one of faith and hope, it should bring great love on the heels of it. And if you're feeling that, you feel like you want to object, again, take up your objection with, with the Lord right now and see what He would do. In this moment, if instead of putting up the wall, you ask the Lord if it's true. And leave it at that. Okay? I know that happens. And here's, here's the problem. Standing up 
for however long, a half hour to an hour or so, to declare some things from God's Word with 50 people in here. Everybody's hearing something different. And I'm one man trying to paint a picture, and it's incomplete, because there's not enough time. I mean, that's why Paul had a man fall out of a window. Because they actually took time to labor over these things to find out what was true, and then the people that labored to listen for a long time then went and did their work of laboring to see if those things were true. You see, we're so sluggish about truth. So, my challenge to you guys tonight is to go to Colossians 3. That's my challenge to you guys. And as we do, context is always key to understanding. Start with chapter, verse 20 and see why Paul is telling you to do 3.1. Starting with verse 20 of chapter 2. If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why as if you were living in the world do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Same thing that happened in the garden. Remember Eve added to what God said, we shouldn't even touch it. But all God said is, don't eat it. We always add things to try to artificially obey God. We always add things to protect from revealing the reality that we're not obeying God. Pharisees did it. They put more boundaries around the law that was already there. We do it. Sometimes fasting can be something that we use to show our righteousness. Instead of find our barrenness and get reacquainted with it. Prayer, preaching, intellectual uh, Defenses, like I was just talking about, where our opinion of what Scripture says comes against what somebody else thinks. So we value our intellectual opinion and understanding of the Word over the difference we have with somebody else. So many issues that we have. There's so many idols that we have. There's so many things that get in the way of just the simplicity of what Paul says to do right here instead of uh, self-made religion and such that was in chapter 2. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. If then you've been raised up with Christ, okay, you've been born again, raised up with Christ. In other words, Christ is on the throne, right? And we're recognized in Him. Because He's on the throne, all humanity is recognized through Christ. When the Father looks at Christ, that's how He sees believing humanity in Christ. So if we've been raised up, born again, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind. Affections or will is the word. Phreneo. It's all-inclusive. On things above. Not on the things that are on the earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Again, you identify with Jesus and His righteousness. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. 
Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it was on account of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but put aside these things. So, set your mind on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, this word, phreneo, is the same Greek word that Jesus used in the 16th chapter of Matthew, which was one of the which is one of the biggest misunderstood passages, misused, mispreached passages that I think I've heard in recent years. And again, the, the reason look at it. It's, it's it's really it's really grieving that we miss it when Jesus comes in Matthew 16. And he asks the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you? And Peter answered and said, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. And I also say to you, that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So he's saying, you're rocky, kind of like an endearing term. You're a little rock. And upon this rock of revelation of who I am, the church will be built. I'm the Messiah. And they're like, yes, and amen. Come, David, now, and rule. And he says, I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, he's given authority to the apostles, right? Apostolic authority. And whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. By Jesus' authority. He passes it on to them. And he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Messiah. Okay? He knew people would misunderstand that he was the Messiah. He wanted people to put faith in him. He didn't want people just to believe because word was spread that he's Messiah and he's Mr. Popular. He wanted people to have faith in him as the Messiah. To believe for themselves, to get the revelation themselves. Especially considering the next words. So from that time on, what did Jesus say? Peter, you're going to have this thrown over here. John, you're going to have this one. It's going to be glorious. We're going to have all these diamonds and our luxury and our wallet's going to be fat. And you're going to roll in a Rolls Royce and wear Rolex. Right? No. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, be raised up on the third day. And Now, Peter took him aside because the Jews didn't understand that there was two comings of Messiah. Okay? They were blind to it. And there's much blindness now, even when Moses is read, the prophets are read, the veil is over their eyes, right? A partial hardening has happened to Israel, don't be ignorant, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, God hasn't cast them off. There's a grace, gracious remnant by God's choice. He's always, the gifts and calling of 
God or without repentance, Israel is still his kingdom of priests to be first, the firstborn, the head of the nations and not the tail, to be blessed when they go out and when they come in. Those are promises to Israel. I know I'm, I'm purposely stepping on toes a little bit, but those blessings are for the Jews as a nation. That's the, the call of the, the, the nation, the honor, the stewardship of the Jews. And by the way, they're also called to suffer greatly, and they have. And they're, be exhibit, they're exhibit A for us in the earth to embrace the same path because their Messiah did it, and then he calls us to, and the apostles call us to. And so look what Jesus was doing. He was saying, Peter and John and James and all of you, this is what's going to happen. And Peter looked and took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, or God be merciful to you. It was a statement, a common idiom, or you know, language that there were, a phrase they'd throw out. No, God, it's like God bless you. Of our day. You know, we say it so much that it, it's just kind of a phrase. It doesn't really have meaning anymore. But God bless you would mean God bend the knee and meet your, you in your desperation. That's what blessing means. That God bends the knee and comes down to the human condition. God gives us what we don't deserve. But we kind of hand out God bless you like candy, you know? Because we just don't, we just get used to not thinking about what it means, okay? Understand, we, we all do it. We all, we all get to that place. So Peter's like, God forbid. God have mercy on you. That's not God's mercy. That's not God's ways. God's not like that. You're the Messiah. You're going to reign right now. And Jesus wastes no time. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you're not setting your mind, affections, and will on God's interests, but on man's. Same word as Colossians. Set your minds on things above. What's he saying here? Set your mind on my ways. And then he explains it. He says, he said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. What would a man profit if he gained the whole world and lose his soul? The Son of Man will come in his glory and his Father with all the angels recompense every man according to his deeds and some will who are standing here will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom okay that's another verse that has to have explanation in second peter one peter said we have a word more sure the man clothed in white is coming the vision on the mount the majestic glory said it's my son so they got a vision of him coming as king like david they needed that so they'd be prepared to actually suffer a martyr's death. They needed to get that vision. He immediately goes to the mount with James and John and Peter, like the next day or something, or six days later, I think it says. And they go up and they see a picture of him and Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And Peter wants to make tabernacle for him because he, think, he thinks it's time for the tabernacle of God to be with man because it's such a brilliant reality. He thinks the kingdom is coming. And then all of a sudden, in his fear and his haste to say then. All of a sudden, the cloud lifts, and it's just Jesus. And he says, don't be afraid. Hey, stand up. Let's go. Don't tell anybody that until I rise from the dead. Why? Because it's a snapshot of what's going to happen when he returns. So he does that to prepare them to understand that it's not this morbid 
out of context, in a vacuum, just God that sadistically wants you to suffer, it's He wants you to come back to the very good, to the design that He made. Because the common mantra today is this, well, the finished work of the cross. And the answer is yes. But the finished work of the cross is not finished with you. Only Jesus has finished the race. So now suddenly the place of prayer makes sense. Prayer is about repentance. Repentance is about returning to God. And being in fellowship with God. Sin is not fellowship with God. Something's got to change. Suffering applied to our flesh, 1 Peter 4 says, makes us done with sin, no longer to live our life for the pleasures of man, but for the will of God. Because God wants all to live by the Spirit and not by the flesh, those dead or those living. He wants to give us life by His Spirit in the resurrection. And the end of all things is near, so be sober and self-controlled so that you can pray. And above all, be fervent in your love for one another. Show hospitality. Employ the gifts in the manifold grace of God. If it's teaching, like the very oracles of God. Speak as it's the very voice of God. We're in an urgent hour. Love deeply because it covers a multitude of sins. In other words, it helps us overcome. It's a safe place with a brother where you're real about your sin. And that blanket is not him saying, well, it's not really there. That blanket is, bro, I understand. Let's deal with it. Let's get real. That's what it means to cover sin. To uncover sin is to cover your own. To not love is to uncover somebody's sin and expose their sin so that you can keep at arm's length your sin. But in these urgent days, we need to spur one another on to love as we see the day drawing near. We need to fellowship with one another in prayer because the end of all things is near. So, embracing suffering, embracing the cross, prepares us for a culture of prayer. Because there's no culture of prayer outside the culture of the cross. And outside the culture of the cross, there is no hope for righteousness. There is no context for love for each other. But in the context of of prayer, being in the context of the cross, the cross, a man on a cross, can no longer be a part of the world as much as the world no longer cares to be a part of him. See that? When you're on a cross, the world looking on is not interested in being a part of what you're doing and you have no opportunity to be a part of what they're on. And Paul says... May I never boast in my own righteousness in any way. But in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I crucified to the world. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but a new creation. 
and peace be upon those who follow this rule, and even upon the Israel of God. The true ones that aren't making the Gentiles be circumcised for self-righteous purposes. You see? The true Jew is one inwardly. The true Gentile is one inwardly. And in these last days, being joined to the hope of Israel is to be joined to the crucifixion. And God's calling the church to a corporate crucifixion. Literally. That's why the place of prayer is so urgent. Because fellowship with God is the point of suffering. Joy. The Father's delight. And the Father's delight was to crush His Son. And if we're to be like His Son, it's His delight to crush us to be like His Son. To bring many sons to glory. The same way Jesus came to glory. The place of prayer is embracing your brokenness. And finding God's voice as your pilot for life. And and finding God's voice by turning away from your own things. Turning to Him. 